So this is a rumination I've actually been kind of looking forward to because it meant I got a chance to replay this game. Now, what's funny is this was originally going to be a game that was shoved way earlier in the overall rumination schedule. Uh, however, as some of my viewers will know, I actually couldn't find my CD of the game. And that posed an issue. So I was like, well, that sucks. I'll have to buy the game again. So I decided to go ahead and push it back rather than try to make do or whatever. Uh, then, as some of you are aware, this game came out on good old games, uh, relatively recently, actually, just a couple months ago now, uh, called Homeworld Emergence. So let me just go ahead and say, just super quick, anybody who hasn't had a chance to play this gem of a game, I highly recommend it. It's not super expensive, it's on good old games, and it's called Homeworld Emergence. Excuse me. Now, <clears throat> I loved Homeworld. Like, a lot. Uh, I think the, the various times I have streamed Homeworld, Homeworld 2, and Deserts of Karak all show that I really enjoy this series. And all of the games in it. Although I do have to admit that I had to mod Homeworld 2 to finally really enjoy that one. Because Homeworld 2 is not that great, in my honest opinion. But that leads us to a weird situation. See, Cataclysm, this game, was not actually made by Relic, who are the people who made well, most of the rest of the games involved in the series, most especially the original one, and two. Now, Relic did a lot of work to make a believable hard science setting, which it's set in, which I think is one of the appeals to me personally. And they were great with the storytelling, they were great with the set pieces, you know, almost every aspect of it was gold. Problem is that for various reasons, which, you know what, I've decided I'm not going to get into. Basically, let's just say that originally Vivendi held Sierra, held Relic, held the rights, because this is how ridiculous corporations are. And remember, this, this was years and years ago. This isn't new. So that was how the right chain went. And some of you may or may not remember, because I've talked about this a few times, because there was another company under Vivendi called Blizzard, which some of you may have heard of. Uh, when Vivendi had its whole issue and started basically the process by which they would eventually file for bankruptcy, which would eventually led, lead to them actually becoming solvent again. Uh, and a lot, of, a lot of ripples happened because of the Vivendi self-destruct and then reconstruction. Uh, actually, in many ways, it was worse than the THQ disaster, which is more recent, because the THQ disaster basically had THQ completely fall apart, and its pieces part and parceled out and sold to different companies. Uh, I'll get to that in a second. But the Vivendi disaster basically self-destructed most of the major companies of the era and sent the developers off to the four winds. Uh, in fact, the developers who worked on this game were also affected by the Vivendi disaster in its own way because it was a thing that happened over the course of several years. If you've ever played Sword, uh, Sword of the Stars or Sins of a Solar Empire, those are games that are made by some of the developers who were tossed into the winds uh, as a consequence of this overarching event that happened over the course of like five years. So that's that's the level of quality we've got going here. But I'm getting off topic. Point being, all of this happened, and so this other team of people who basically haven't really done anything, just this whole new team. I don't even. It was like Barking Dog Studio or something. It's a, it's a development team I've never even heard of, and were basically put together for this game and like three others, made this game, and then of course 
you know, stuff happened like I just described, and they went to the winds and started making their own games of relative equivalency. But if you've played sort of the stars or sins of a solar empire, you know the general pedigree of the developer here because these people know what they're doing. And in my blunt opinion, Cataclysm is the best game in the Homeworld series overall. Probably not best in terms of storytelling. That's actually pretty tricky to pick the best overall story of the six points of story, but definitely the best game. It's it's hard to properly explain why. Uh, anybody who knows the Final Fantasy series well, I can explain this very simply. This is the Final Fantasy V of the Homeworld series. For those of you who do not know that, I'm going to try and explain this a little bit. FF5 is, in my opinion, the best game from a purely gameplay perspective of the Final Fantasy series. It does many things, and it does all of them right. Um, but... And it's so hard to explain this because there's no, like, one thing that they did right. It's not like they have a great job system. No, no, that's that's not it. It's not like they have a great, you know, leveling curve or difficulty curve. They, they did the leveling and the difficulty and the dungeon design and the boss design and the random trash design and the actual combat engine itself and the method by which you level, the method by which you job, the overall reward ratio of both gill and, and experience the layout of the overworld and the way that they move, flow together. You know, every aspect of the gameplay of FF5 was masterful. And that's the same thing with Cataclysm. So again, I can't really summarize how awesome the game is here. But I think some of the biggest points, which I'm going to touch on here really quick, are, number one, it brought the scale down. Uh, obviously, that's a story effect as well, and I'll talk about that later when we start talking about the story. But what I mean by that is rather than having a fleet of, you know, 90 corvettes and, and 18 frigates and, like, five destroyers or whatever, you have a fleet of, like, two dreadnoughts, maybe, which are effectively heavy cruisers, so kind of misnamed there. Uh, two dreadnoughts, probably, like, six frigates, and probably, like, maybe 30 or 40 fighters and God knows what else. And that's pretty much your fleet. Thing is, that by itself would kind of suck, but they put effort into making sure each unit was a little more distinct from the others and had more that you could do with it other than attack or one special option. And so there's more variety and more flexibility to the units, which basically encourages more micro in addition to the fact that it brought the overall scale of the fleet down. So both of this makes for a more intense, more, uh, I guess the word I want to use is tactical experience, whereas most Homeworld games, uh, that's not true, whereas Homeworld 1 and Homeworld 2 feel more strategic, you know, pulling yourself back out of the individual moment a little bit more. Now, I'm not saying you can't micro in Homeworld 1 and Homeworld 2. I've actually showcased that myself when I was streaming both games. Um, but you, you, can, you can see the, the disparity of the, the style and the approach. You could argue this is a bad thing, of course, because it is easier to micro in Cataclysm than it is in Homeworld. I don't personally agree with that, but I'll at least acknowledge the possibility. They also changed up uh, a lot of the ways that upgrading works and that your research tiers, and again, as I mentioned, the style of ships you have and all that fun stuff. They also did more inventive and creative stuff with the missions and the mission triggers themselves. Now, the funny thing is, that part also makes this the FF5 of the Homeworld series. See, I have a concept called the FF5 effect, which you can see over on my Lorium's page. Uh, boiled down, it means a game is actually legitimately difficult 
unless you know what you're doing really well, in which case it goes from being really difficult to being really easy. It's not actually easy, it's just you know how to game the system. Cataclysm has that in spades. There are many missions, almost all of the missions really, where if you know the triggers and what's going to happen as a consequence of them, you can manipulate those to make the missions way easier than they otherwise would be. Um, two big examples that come to mind off the top of my head here. Uh, there's a mission where the whole point is that your strike craft, your fighters and corvettes and support vehicles, are all stuck in the hangar bay where they go by default in the main ship because of some sabotage. Well, if you know that's coming and you know how to utilize those strike craft properly, you just have them all dock in your carrier so that when you pop out of the mission, you still have access to all these ships that the, the mission is not designed for you to have. Another example of this would be on the final mission, where it is possible through careful effort to salvage one of the final carriers of the Titan Republic. If you do so, as a consequence of the fact that that carrier is still there, the cutoff reinforcements trigger never happens. So you get a steady stream of ally reinforcements the entire mission, which, again, was not intended by the actual designers of, of the mission. That's kind of what I'm talking about. Whether it's a good or a bad thing is up to you. I personally prefer it because I like A, being rewarded for knowing what I'm doing, and B, having the choice to do it or not. I may or may not choose to do those little tricks to make things easier or better, and I get to choose that, as ever I tend to be really big on player choice and player agency. Whew. So, Cataclysm. Um, I, uh, I want to talk about two more things about the gameplay before I get into the actual story. Uh, first of all, I just want to tell you a small story from my own life. Uh, Homeworld was a game that I picked up, uh, I believe it was a demo of it actually, and it was related, it was came out right about the time Half-Life did. Uh, it was actually, I remember distinctly, I can picture the the CD case, the jewel case, which some of you probably don't even know what that is, uh, where you know it's, it's Half-Life and on the back is an ad advert for Homeworld. And uh, I played that demo, and I was hooked. I was so hooked. Oh, my God. It was a demo. I remember now, because it included a couple of missions that aren't actually in Homeworld 1, where you actually go after the Tyrannic Raiders' Homeworld. I remember that now. Um, and it was awesome. In fact, it was so I was so hooked, I can't even put it into words. Anybody who knows me knows I'm a ship guy. So that's that's already, I'm inclined, because it's a ship RTS. Anybody who knows me knows that as much as I'm not that great at them, I love strategy games of all varieties, you know. Grand strategy, 4X, RTS, tactical turn-based, squad-based combat, all of that. I love it all. It's it's one of my favorite genres, if, if you were to pull the whole umbrella back and just call it strategy. So, ships, strategy, very Star Wars-y, lots of Star Wars-y enough, and as I mentioned, Tons of lore. Huge. An absolute wealth of lore. The, the manual was like this thick. And most of that was just discussing the kith and their clans and the backstory and the relations between each other and, and the culture and why they did this and the process by which they spent the 70 years building the mothership and all this wonderful, amazing breadth of lore. I was so hooked to this game, I can't put it into words. It's one of the very few games that really got its hooks into me. That doesn't happen that often, believe it or not. Um, in fact, I think before this, the last time that really happened was with Final Fantasy VI, which was several years earlier, so you can see the, the breadth of time there. So, I was... Now, I, this is where I get a little embarrassed, because I was so hooked, I was taking the game into school with me. See, I was actually one of the people who set up the initial network of the schools, and, and, you know, it, what it basically was a LAN, uh, of, of the school computers at the high school I went to. And... 
so I kind of had the, I guess, trust is the word to use, of all of the teachers and the principal involving the computers. You know, and several of them would come to me on a regular basis saying, hey, how do I do such and such? Um, so for some of my classes, when I either had nothing else to do or had finished my work, I would wander over to the computer, pop in the CD, which I kept in my backpack, and just start playing Homeworld. Um, Believe it or not, that didn't actually lead to any issues because even this was after the obsession with video games part of my life where I understood that you do your work first, then you play. But it did lead to some funny moments where I'm sitting there playing Homeworld and, and you know, a friend shows up or a couple other students show up or a teacher shows up like, what is that? Well, you see, blah, 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 blah. That's how much I loved this game, though. So you might imagine, getting finally to the point, when Cataclysm came out, I was like, yes, bam, bye, first day. Uh, no issues, absolutely. And me and my friend Rob, who was a very great friend of my mind at the time, played the crap out of this game. Obviously, we played single-player campaigns separately, and, and just the next day we would talk about it, like, oh my god, I did this one mission. Oh, I haven't done that mission yet. Don't tell me too much. Okay, okay, but have you done this mission? Yeah, I did that mission. It's so, oh my god, we were just... And then we would play multiplayer with each other. It's one of the extremely few times in my life where I have legitimately enjoyed uh, multiplayer fun. Um, which is funny because, again, the gameplay is what really made that so enjoyable. It's something I didn't really get into in Homeworld 1 and later in Homeworld 2. But the other thing I want to share about this game before we really get starting talking about story, I just wanted to share that because that's how much I really enjoyed this game. Uh, the story is of a completely different tone than the entire rest of the series. Uh, obviously, you know, if you look at that, you're saying, oh, it's a horror game, of course. That's actually not quite what I mean. Overall, if you if you ignore what I'm talking about, the game feels fairly similar in overall construction of its narrative to to the rest of the games in the series. In fact, I want to give huge props and praise to the people who made this game because they bothered to sit down and do their homework. While some of the things that are shown in this game are a little bit, whoa! Nevertheless, everything that they do is still con con coherent and conclusive with the pre-existing lore of Homeworld 1. And they actually bothered to do their research and spent tons of time, again, large manual, talking about, you know, the resettlement of Igara and the massive cultural shifts that happened, you know, and all that fun stuff. In fact, I have a term for this nowadays. Cataclysm is effectively a now-what story. Now, in the off chance you don't know what I'm talking about, I'm going to describe that in brief. A now-what story is, okay, so... You know, plucky heroes or rebels, evil empire or overlord. We've got to do this big, long, epic journey. Heroes rise, everything's awesome, and then we defeat the bad guys. Now what? And I actually love a properly done now what story. They're actually kind of rare. I don't see them all that often. And most of them involve a new threat, like this one does with the beast. But So we, we've got this whole now what thing, but the tone... The tone that I mention is about the people you're playing. I mentioned obviously the smaller fleet size, but that is also a function of the lore. You are not the homeworld ship. You are not some massive military force. You're a bunch of miners who happen to be press ganged into service, not by an individual, but by circumstance. This is actually a fairly classic hero's journey, if you sit back and look at it, but it's done so smoothly that I imagine most people don't even notice that. Remember, we start off being just uh, we're just some random guys who are effectively not in good standing with our own people, and we end up saving the damn galaxy. 
That's, that's, that's the beginning-to-end story arc there. It's really well done. Uh, and so that's part of the tone. But in addition to that, we're a lot less professional. One of the things the Homeworld series has always excelled at is the chatter. The background ambient chatter is in all four of the games. And it's one of the things that, in my opinion, is mandatory to the Homeworld experience. If, if we didn't have that ambient background chatter, it would feel so different. Uh, it's, it's, part of, it's part of the experience. It's part of feeling like you're actually involved in this military experience. But in three of those games, basically every game but this one, that chatter is very crisp, very military, very professional, brilliantly acted. Uh, it's very hard to sound that kind of neutral and professional in tone without sounding boring, and they do a good job of that. Here, you've got people who are like, ugh, all right, beginning harvesting, or yeah, I'll go and check that out. You know, it's way more casual. And because it is so much more casual, that's what I mean by that tone. In the other games, you could probably relate to the characters, maybe, under certain circumstances, but in this game, you have a far more likely chance of relating to the overall events and the people you are playing at, the fleet you are playing as, because they are much more normal. They are far more ordinary and down-to-earth than the professional militaries of the other three games. And I feel that that really adds to the overall tint of the game, the, the coloration of it, the flavor of it, if you will. I want to talk briefly about some of the backstory stuff. I mentioned the whole now what. Um, so obviously the Kushan established the new Higaran Council based on, uh, and, and, and established their whole thing. This happened several years after the first homeworld. And uh, they have this whole council, but the council is dominated by the predominant kith. Uh, Kith being the clans in the setting of the original uh, Kushan. Most notably, the Sajet clan is basically the dominant clan and is the one who actually dictates policy. There's a lot of politics going on. And it gets to the point where several of the separate Kiths have found themselves either chafing under the rule of the Sajet and the other predominant clans or saying, well, I mean, I just... I, I, I don't even know how to cope or deal with, with the fact that my home world is dead. Remember, these people were waking up from stasis and then informed of the events of the first game, which were rather world-shattering. In fact, one of the things in the background lore talks about the sheer number of suicides and suicide attempts by the people who were woken up from stasis after they learned the truth of what happened. So... All of these people, for many different reasons, are like, I, I, I need to try and find my place in this new world, this new setting that I, I know nothing about. I mean, remember, most of these people were planet-bound or near-orbit-bound for all of their lives and existence and going back endless generations to suddenly be thrust into a galactic community and having no idea how to deal with that. Now, the Songta, that's who we play as, the Kith Songta, are a predominant example of this. Um, so each of the Kith, for obvious reasons, get to use the mothership for, like, a brief period of time, rationing, basically, as part of the whole we're going to help everyone out in building their new lives initiative. Which I like. I like that idea. Um, so what they decide to do is they're like, we're getting the hell out of here. Screw this mess. We're going to go ahead and we're going to build this big old mining ship. Actually, two mining ships, but whatever. And we're going to get the hell out of Dodge, try to get away from the predominant politics of the Higaran sphere, and get out to try and make our fortune. Now, here's the interesting thing. 
this is mentioned in several points, but most notably in the backstory. The Somta actually desire political dominance within the Hagaran influence sphere. Now, the thing is, they have none. They're not great warriors. They don't have some great cultural backing. And most of them weren't really involved in the Homeworld War. Most of the actual Somta who are active were the people driving the damn harvest collectors, right? So, obviously, it's like, okay... What are we going to do? Well, their thinking is economics. They go out and establish these mining vessels and try to start establishing connections, ties, trade routes, and otherwise to, to build up an economic infrastructure and use that to start literally and metaphorically buying influence back in the Hagaran sphere. So all of that's cool and awesome and the kind of thing that just sings to me, of course. You know, politics, economics, culture. I love it all. I eat it all up. Now... Next thing I want to talk about, really quick, before we really get into the story proper, is the Taidan Empire. Now, the Taidan Empire effectively ceased to exist after the first game. It self-destructed, uh, was in the process of, of fighting a massive internal revolt, uh, rebellion, revolution, civil war, or all of the above, depending on how you de debate that, during the events of Homeworld 1. Uh, when Emperor Evil the Fourth the Second decided to go ahead and nuke uh, Karak, he did that as kind of a show of "Ha ha! I am now in charge!" and look at how all these evil people I have wiped out so seamlessly. And instead, that just galvanized everyone against him and led to the aforementioned civil war, insurrection, revolt, etc. Now I bring this up in addition uh, because. Once the Taidan Empire ceased to effectively function as an independent entity, it split into mul multiple organizations. Now, unfortunately, in all the lore I looked into, I can only find information about two of them. The Republic and the Imperialist uh, Remnant. <laughs> Shades of Star Wars here. Now, the Taidani Republic are the good guys, right? The ones who have allied with the Hagarans, the ones who were helping us during the fight, during the Homeworld War. And they absolutely are a better organization than the, the original hegemony, as well as the, the imperialist idiots, which I'll get to in a second. But the thing I find fascinating is if you pay attention to the background lore and read the books and all that fun stuff, the Republic is in a weird situation. They don't have a particularly strong military because most of the Taidani military went with the imperialist faction. Again, I'll talk about them in a second. So you have a whole republic with lots of different worlds who are all represented, but you don't really have a strong military to maintain those borders and keep them. And keeping in mind, tyrannic raiders and general pirate groups are a very regular everyday issue in this setting. And then you add the fact that a lot of those independent groups want independence. There are several worlds, inhabited worlds within the Republic who are petitioning for independence, to be loosed from the Republic. And the Republic is trying to keep hold of those. Now, normally that would be the sign of some kind of evil organization. We don't know. We don't know any actual facts other than the fact that independent states do want to be released from the Republic. 
But it's worth noting that that isn't necessarily a sign of an evil republic. There are plenty of legitimate and indeed good reasons, even ignoring the, the political perspective, but from a moralistic perspective, to try and keep, for lack of a better way to put it, the union together, to try and in ensure that the union survives for the betterment of everyone involved within, including the people who want to be independent. Now, I don't know if that's true in this case or not. It could just be that this is another organization, and like the New California Republic, is neither really good or bad. It's just just an organization with good and bad people in it, so I'm shrug. I love the touch there, though. But let's talk about the imperialist Tidan, because they're basically the bad guys of this game, other than, of course, the Beast, who I haven't really talked about yet. And they're stupid. <laughs> I'm sorry. For all of the wealth of intellect and care and caution and precision and beautiful lore that's put into this game, the Tidani militarists are idiots. <laughs> I, I have I have sat down. Please feel free if if you can do what I failed at. I have sat down trying to come up with something to relate to them or to understand them or to help flesh them out more. But all I see is a bunch of morons. See what happened with the imperialist uh, Taidani is that they are predominantly the military. They retain a uh, despotist uh, dictatorship over. That's the wrong way to phrase that. They, they maintain a military dictatorship over what territory that they still hold. Almost none of their inhabited worlds actually want to be ruled by this group. They are just being cowed by the overwhelming force of their military. And as I kind of hinted at before, the majority of the surviving Titan Empire military is the group that is now running the imperialist regime. So basically a military state, a purely military state, which uh, whose, whose member states exist to feed said military, and who regularly tries to attack the Taidani sphere, or excuse me, the Hagaran sphere, as well as the Taidan Republic, and freely allies itself with anybody. Now, some of those alliances make sense, like the Tyrannic. Okay, sure, I'm with that. And some of the pirate groups in the area, okay, fine. And the Beast... These guys find a intelligent, highly virulent Borg thing and decide the best possible way to deal with that is to go ahead and ally with it. They also are a classic example of ignoring the long term in favor of the short term. Maybe, now, I, I don't know, maybe this is just be, uh, endemic of how bad the Taidan Empire's military became. Because back in the Taidan Empire, the military was actually a segregate organization who only really answered to the emperor himself. There was the emperor, there was the uh, the council, uh, the, the lord's council, whatever it was called, and then there was the military. And then under this was the overall bureaucracy that actually managed the empire. So maybe... That what had happened is is Emperor Evil the Fourth the Second had decided to go ahead and fill the military with a bunch of yes men and a bunch of people who are there because of adherence to party doctrine rather than actual military skill and therefore we have a literal military of morons who don't really know how to think long term who don't understand the concept of strategic and have a lot of big guns and a lot of people that they want to shoot them at. That is possible, but that's the closest thing I could come to any sort of relatability for the Titani imperialists. So, shrug. Moving on. Uh, I mentioned the voice actors already. That's a second note here I have. It's, it's really awesome. Um, actually, I'm sorry, I still haven't really gotten into the story. I don't actually have a lot to say about the story, as weird as that sounds. 
Um, it's a good story. It's just I don't have a lot to say about it. Uh, before I really talk about the story yet again, I want to talk about the canonicity, okay? So the continuity of the Homeworld series is vague. There are a few things across the games that deliberately and directly contradict previous games, or in some cases later games. Uh, most of those are little things, some of them are pretty big things, things that would have rather long-standing implications. Uh, the very nature of the hyperspace cores, which was completely retconned in Homeworld 2, is an excellent example of something that is a major change to the overall story. And that is kind of a problem, except here's the really funny thing. Most of those contradictions come from Homeworld 2. Cataclysm coheses with Homeworld 1 almost perfectly. There are extremely few things that you can really point to, to continuity errors, and most of them are things that aren't really errors, they're just bending existing lore in a new direction. The Bentuzi is a good example of this. So, huh? I, I, that really weirds me out, because Homeworld 2 was made by mostly the same people as the... As, as, as the, who made Homeworld 1. Some people, including some official people at Relic, have, or what, what used to be Relic, uh, have basically stated, uh, Gearbox I guess is the better way to put that now, have basically stated that Homeworld 1 is canon, Homeworld 2 is canon, Homeworld Carrick is canon, and this game is loosely canon. And I find that weird because that statement would make more sense if Homeworld 2 was loosely canon. Now, granted, Deserts of Karak kind of reinforces some of the things they started in Homeworld 2, but at the same time, Deserts of Karak neatly ties into one, which neatly ties into Cataclysm. The three actually would form a very cohesive trilogy if you were to play them in that order. In fact, anybody new to the Homeworld series, I strongly recommend you play Karak, and then one, and then Cataclysm, and, that, and then stop there. <laughs> Homeworld 2 is okay, but those three form a cohesive trilogy. I just find it odd that the official response is to look at this in in such a different light. Especially since at this point, the only thing actually preventing a proper remaster or re-release of Cataclysm is the lack of the source code. And several developers have flat out stated they want to do one anyways, basically recreating the art assets from scratch or, re or reverse engineering them. That's actually the wrong term, but you know, data ripping them from the existing games and the CDs and trying to use that as a method by which to, to redo the game. So, I really don't understand this attitude on this one, and I'd love to hear any of your guys' thoughts. I know uh, when I was streaming the Homeworld series, a lot of people who are really into the Homeworld lore popped in and were talking about it, so as ever, I welcome your guys' thoughts on this. But let's finally talk about the story. Alright, so there's the beast and it's evil. Okay, that's all... It no, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Um, I mentioned the wonderful voice acting. Credit cannot be given enough to the voice acting of the Homeworld series in general, but a lot of the inhuman organic screams that happen in this game are absolutely goddamn terrifying and really add to the atmosphere and enjoyment of this game. Holy crap. Um, I have to give huge props to that. Um, but that's kind of later. It starts off in a great way. So we've got a Tidan imperialist attack, which is attacking the Hagaran defense sphere, which includes uh, Hagaran ships, Kushan ships, as well as some Titan Republic ships. The the Somta, the uh, the Kunla, the Kunlan, excuse me, that's who we're on, is called. Basically, receives a distress signal about the attack. Now, what I love about this is all of this makes perfect sense. Basically, think of it this way: the big Imperial fleet is attacking the big defense fleet. 
We, who are a bunch of miners, I remind you, who have a couple of acolytes, can't really do a lot about this fight directly. But so often, fiction tends to forget that, that military maneuvers are about more than the main armies facing off. And so we end up f functioning as support skirmishers who help to uh, repair, scout, and engage smaller forces. In other words, exactly the kind of thing that does happen in actual military engagements. And so for many reasons, the first mission is actually one of my favorites in the whole game because of the logic of that and how we... A couple, you know, a, a group of miners with a mining vessel managed to nevertheless have a positive impact on a much larger scale battle. Now, I have a question for you guys, because I don't actually have an answer for this myself, and it's interpretable. Why do you think the Samta, that's us, decided to go ahead and answer that distress call? That may sound like a weird question, but even early on, it's made very clear, even if you ignore the manual and the backstory, that we're not really on good terms with the core defenses or the core political powers in the Hagaran sphere, as I talked about earlier. We are effectively outsiders. In fact, when they mention, thank you, Kith Blah and Kith Blah, they don't even mention the Samta in their gratitude, even, even though, again, we were helpful in that fight. Maybe not instrumental. We didn't exactly turn the tide. But we did help. We did drop everything and come in as miners. I want to stress that again. As people who go digging through rock and are trying to make, carve some kind of living for ourselves to come help defend our homeworld. We don't get gratitude for that. We even joke about it acerbically on the comms. So why did we go ahead and do it anyways? Well, I've got three potential answers I'm going to toss at you from my own speculation. The first and the most obvious is our home is attacked let's go, you know, it's, it's it, loyalty to Higara, loyalty to the Kushan. That's the most obvious answer. It's also the one I don't agree with the most. I think that's not really something that's being uh, kept in mind. The second possibility is that we are one of those groups of people who we may disagree, and we may argue, and we may fight, but when the chips are down, we got your back. Um... This is actually something that literally came up yesterday in real life. Uh, my sister and I were talking, and uh, she mentioned a quote, which I loved. She said how brothers and sisters are like cats and dogs. They may fight and argue, but when something actually threatens both of them, they unite immediately to go against it. I don't know where that quote comes, but I love the idea, and I love that concept. It's actually true on many levels for many scales. Uh, to use a extended parallel, look at the United States in about 1930s compared to about mid-1940s. When we have some kind, we as a people, we as a concept, have something to unite against, something that threatens us, when the chips are down, as I like to put it, we tend to put aside all that crap and just, like, deal with something. This is probably the most likely answer as to why the Samta decided to assist. We'll, we'll complain and moan about it, we'll mutter as we go back home and go back to our things, but they were under attack, and we got their backs. The third option is the one that appeals to me the most, and is probably the least likely. The third option is that this is a political maneuver. Now, we know from the backstory, as I already mentioned, that the Samta wants some kind of political predominance uh, back back within the Hagaran, influ inf Hagaran influence sphere. God, I'm starting to stutter on my words here. <laughs> I'm, throwing, I'm just throwing pronouns and proper nouns at you left and right. Forgive me, guys. Um, 
We also know this uh, twice throughout the course of the game itself. Once much later, the beast actually tries to tempt us with this, saying, don't you want to have this kind of eminence? Don't you want to be the kind of group that has sway and influence back home? And we say, yeah, of course we do. Not with you. God, that'd just be stupid. What do you think we are, Titanium imperialists? That's not what we say, literally. But that's effectively the response. And the whole thing that cat cut cuts kicks this off is that we find this little bit of alien tech and we are directed by the the headquarters of the kith samta to get to it first we could take it somewhere where it could be better studied with better people and better technology and influence uh, research knowledge capacity you know proper facilities but we want that because we want samta to have that because duh right in other words, I wonder how much of the Samta assisting in the defense is trying to gain brownie political points, basically, back home. Showing that, yeah, we may just be a bunch of miners, but we got your back when we need it, so, you know, just saying. Keep that in mind in the future. It's funny, by the way, all this political desire from the Samta is something that, by the end of the game, happens in spades. At least according to this game. Homeworld 2 decides to ignore all of these events almost completely. But in this game, in the ending of this game, we get, we, the Somtog get near galactic-wide prominence and, and renown and, and tons of political affluence as a result of being the ones who were the beast slayers. So, yay! We even got it by doing the right things. That's kind of cool, too. But that brings me to what I was just mentioning. So... This is what I like to call a double irony. First of all, as I already mentioned, we find this alien tech and we want to look into it. So we want to make sure that we have our claim in it. We want to stake our claim on that. You know, kind of like how the Bajorans wanted to stake their claim on that wormhole, even though they had no ability to actually enforce that. So we were like, okay, we gotta, we gotta get this. We gotta analyze it ourselves. Okay, sure. Now, obviously, the 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 initial. Uh, I guess this isn't really irony, so the, the double amusement, I'll call it, for lack of a better word. The first amusement is the fact that we have unleashed the beast. We go and look at this thing, and as a result, we lose literally half our ship, are nearly crippled by it, and almost die in the process. The second amusement is think about how much worse this would have been if we had taken this to a proper facility. Think about taking this back to a station in orbit of Higara, for example and getting it in there, and it starts activating, and starts taking over that station. We happened, by, by what is effectively luck, to be capable of jettisoning, jettisoning part of the ship, because the whole ship was designed to be modular to begin with. That was actually built into it by default, before any of this happened, uh, with, with, with intent and design. So we are capable of jettisoning those, jettisoning those modules. What if this was taken to the mothership? or a station, or a carrier, or planet side. So, ironically, our personal desire to use this for our own ends, arguably selfish, ended up leading to a unique set of circumstances by luck that allowed this, us to actually be able to fight back against this thing. This is another interesting point. Some people say the beast is too overpowered, and while it certainly is really strong, that strength is a strength of ability rather than actual strength. And I know that sounds like a weird way to put that, but let me put it to you this way. Um, 
you know, I'm, I'm actually not going to use that analogy. I was going to use the Borg as an analogy. I've talked extensively about the Borg on my show and I have my own philosophy and mindset about them. But basically, if you look at any race which is considered to be, we're super powerful, um, most of the time when people think super strong race or entity or whatever, they think someone who is personally super strong. In other words, that nothing can stop them. But... The, in the case with the beast, and in some ways with the Borg, that strength is not in actual raw power. It is in the unique abilities they have, and the careful and, and considered use they can use those abilities towards. If you pay attention to the story of Cataclysm, or Emergence, or whatever, early on the beast is really weak, and barely can do anything. And in fact, if we had known what we were fighting, we probably would have destroyed it before it ever became an actual problem. But we didn't know what we were fighting. And so people constantly underestimate this enemy as a consequence of not knowing the enemy. And so it manages to manipulate and deceive and connive its way through the situation and manages to grow to the point where it becomes a threat and then becomes a massive threat as, as there's this whole war going on in the background while we're trying to actually cut off the head of the beast and learn to find a way to permanently sterilize it like we do with the siege cannon. And I like that because it pulls the beast down in power level while still maintaining it as a threat. Also... I just want to point this out in case someone thinks I'm missing it. In the first mission in this game, a huge battle is happening off in the distance, and we do stuff on the side to help that battle win. In the entire campaign of this game, there's this huge battle going off in the distance, and we're doing stuff on the side to help that huge battle win. Although the second time is more... We, we are pretty much the crucial element, as opposed to the first time, where we are simply an element. So, nice little symmetry there. So then, uh, let's talk about the beast itself. Uh, let's get into that. So the beast is uh, horrifying. <laughs> Absolutely goddamn horrifying. Surprisingly hard science in about half of its implementation. The whole point is that it will spread to something and it will infect uh, biological matter and use that and basically repurpose biomass, uh, kind of similar to John Carpenter's The Thing, in order to connect actual consoles, circuitry, etc. In other words, it just repurposes crew into functioning as a crew for the ship. It actually makes lots of sense when you think about it. it. Basically, rather than having 50 people running a ship, you have one entity running the ship. Now, all, the, all that biomass is turned into a neural network that connects all that circuitry and all those control panels. So now the ship becomes basically the body, and the people that were in it become the nerves and, and the blood and all the things that connect that body. And that's absolutely freaking horrifying in many different ways. Um... And, and, and the, the game manages to be really, really messed up in horror without actually going too far into anything that would actually be considered gory. Uh, for example, it's, it's, it's mentioned how the Taidani, uh, the, the imperialists, are trying to do experiments where they deliberately graft people with beast cells in order to try and take control of the beast. That never works out. And then they have to sterilize the situation. And that's pretty much how it's phrased. They don't actually really show just what that would look like. They never really show what the biocircuitry or any of that stuff actually looks like. They don't need to. And I'm glad they don't, because that would be, well. But the way they describe it and the way it's presented, it's, it's an intellectual, it's an implied horror. 
But then we get to the Bentusi. Now, I know this is, feels like a topic jump, but I think the segue here from the horror is apt, because for the Bentusi, this is the most horrifying thing that can exist. There is one still which shows a person completely covered in biomass and a single eye, clearly wide-eyed, terrified, and trapped, looking out from, from the biomass, which beautifully demonstrates the point. Because the beast, for whatever reason, and this is never actually explained, doesn't just consume and repurpose the Bentuzi. It takes the Bentuzi and traps them within the shell that is now the, the beast's body, the Bentuzi ship. And it just leaves them there. And it, they can't move, they can't function, they don't have, you know, their, their bodies are basically atrophied enemies. Remember, that was kind of the point of being an unbound, because their bodies are their ships. And, they can't do anything. They can't even kill themselves. And it is implied that the beast will keep them alive for whatever reason. Maybe it's because of the nature of their unboundness. Uh, they need the body or the connections alive of, of the individual who's connected to the ship in order to keep running the ship. So they keep them alive, unable to do or say or feel anything forever. And that's goddamn horrifying. That is the most horrifying thing in this whole game, in my opinion. And it's it's funny because it really helps to emphasize just why the Bentusi freak out so badly about this whole situation. Literally to the point where they're willing to bail on the entire galaxy because, nope, I'm not having anything with that. My second favorite mission in this game is actually the mission where the Bentusi start attacking you because you're desperately pleading with them for help. It's a wonderfully emotional gut punch of, an, uh, of a mission. And it's the voice acting on both sides. There's this great line, You're killing us! You're killing us! You're... And there's this wonderful bit, you know, what's, what's the difference? If you're going to just kill us, then fine. We'd rather die to one... What's the difference between dying one ancient galactic monster and another one? And the Bentusi's almost feeble response, We are not monsters. I don't know. But what I love is after this rant that he throws at them, which is what gets the Bentusi's attention... The way he convinces them to help them is by sharing a universal commonality. Something about that, I love that. I, I've, I've always loved it in fiction, where groups of people who are disp disparate and separate and, and different find a common ground which they can all stand upon. And in this case, that common ground is fear. And I know that sounds weird, because fear is almost universally seen as a negative thing, with good reason. The Bentusi were, were about to commit mass slaughter as a result of fear. But fear can be a good thing, because really, fear is actually a neutral thing. It is an emotion. It is what you do because of that fear that really matters. And so he, the Bentusi were willing to, to cut tail and run and kill whoever was in their way out of fear. And we were willing to fight them and die in the process out of fear. Why don't we try and find something where we can collaborate out of fear? We are both afraid of the beast. We are both afraid of what will become of this galaxy. Let's do something about it. And I love that. Um... I mean, I, I could mention other great set-piece scenes, uh, the colonists. 
the colonists are, are these colony ships who are evacuating a, a, a disaster, and, you know, some of them are taken over. And what's really, really horrible is that this, the ships that are taken over then start launching new missiles. Now, if you don't understand what I mean by that, these are colony ships, and they are repurposed to start launching infection missiles. What do you think makes up that infection? What do you think was turned into those missile bays and launchers? There's a whole bunch of colonists, there's a whole bunch of biomass ready to be used, made useful. Um, and there's some other great set pieces as well. Uh, the revelation of the, the moon. Ugh, this, gotta have a super weapon. Um, the, uh, pretty much the entire final mission is really awesome. There's a quote in this game that uh, isn't actually that well voice acted, but the dialogue, the, the the writing, the line has stuck with me ever since. You are what all life is to us. Food. And I love that line, because it really demonstrates the beast in, in a simple na nature. And it helps to make the beast alien while still being understandable. It doesn't go into weird or, or, or psychedelic or uh, uh, abstract. It's actually something very understandable. It, it consumes in order to exist. <laughs> you know, very understandable concept. But that's it. Everything it does is towards that end. It is an extreme. And, whew. <laughs> uh, I do have a question about the, the siege cannon. Because I have three thoughts about the siege cannon. Uh, we obviously find it at the Karos Graveyard, where, which actually all three of the Spacebound gra uh, games go to the Karos Graveyard, go figure. But what we don't know is what it was originally. There are three basic possibilities. Uh, there are more, of course, but three that would be narratively significant. I'm curious which you think it is. The most obvious is that this was a progenitor uh, weapon or something that was used. Although I don't actually think that's true personally, and I, I thought about it as I was going through it, because progenitor tech tends to lean in the opposite direction. While obviously there are huge, big progenitor things, for the most part, with I think really only one exception, progenitor tech tends to lead itself towards uh, better usage of energy production uh, and smaller vessels, you know, basically a small vessel being able to do what one of our large vessels can do, you know, that kind of a concept. Obviously, the dreadnoughts kind of uh, bypass that in Homeworld 2, but point made. Second option and third option, which are basically the same option, are it's either Taidan or Higarin. As in the old Taidani, the old Higari, the ones who started that whole war four millennia ago that led to the eventual exile of the Kushan onto Karak. I like that idea the best, because it, it not only does it make sense, but it would also help to explain why this thing is relatively uh, compatible with you know, our technology, with, with our ability to use it. And not fully compatible, we need the Bentusi's help to really get the full use out of, out of the thing. And that's another thing I like too, nice little touch there, helps bring it down a little bit, rather than just, hey, we found a thing, let's smack into our ship. Nope, only works that one time. And didn't really work that one time either, it was just partially functional that one time. And then of course we upgrade it more with the anti-beast stuff, etc, etc. So that's all good stuff too. You know, I'm not actually sure I have anything else to talk about. I'm looking at my notes here really quick. Uh, I talked about the Homeworld 2 stuff. I talked about the cannon. Uh, I talked about the miners, the chips are down, politics, or... Yeah, I guess that's actually all I have to share. This is a great game, an absolute treat to go back through. Uh, I hope you have enjoyed my rumination on this. And I will, of course, be seeing you guys next time.